0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. In the year 1904, the very first science fiction story written by a Chinese author was published. It was titled Tales of the Moon Colony. In the year 2013, China landed its first spacecraft on the surface of the moon, and this week, Nearly 120 years later, after Liang Qichao published his story of a moon colony, China's National Space Administration revealed its timeline to build a lunar base. In other words, a moon colony. But there's a very good chance you didn't hear this news. Because in the US, the news was about a spaceship blowing up just after launching. Or in the words of its owners, SpaceX, having suffered a rapid unscheduled disassembly.
1: The entire Starship stack continuing to rotate. We should have had separation by now. Obviously, this is uh, does not appear to be a nominal situation. Uh, you know, the rocket did take off, which was
2: a major accomplishment. It cleared the tower. Uh, and then just before two minutes into flight, the exhaust plume out of the base of the rocket uh, sort of went asymmetrical you could tell it was no longer as symmetric as it had been and a few seconds after that it started a slow
0: tumble and then exploded i do want to remind everyone that everything after clearing the tower was icing on the cake the
2: first flight of a rocket this big biggest rocket ever built and the fact that they got it up at all was 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 fairly impressive they'll learn from this and they'll try again
0: A day later, the news from Japan was about losing contact with a spaceship trying to land on the moon. A Japanese company was trying to become the first private business to pull off a lunar landing, but flight controllers lost contact with the spacecraft moments before it planned its touchdown. And our simulation might have lost its connection with the MCC. At this
1: moment, we have not able to confirm successful landing on the lunar surface. We will keep going. Never quit Lunar Quest.
0: And the news from China was about losing contact with a vehicle more than 250 million kilometers away on the surface of Mars.
2: We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.
0: But there's a lot more that's been revealed, and a lot more that's about to happen in China's space program this week. And that's before we even start talking about how fast China's commercial space industry is developing. We're going to be talking about China's space station replacing the ISS, 3D printing house bricks on the Moon, creating a GPS system for the Moon, bringing back soil samples from Mars, as well as heading to Jupiter. And of course, the background to all of this is the intense gravity of geopolitics. How the tensions between the U.S. and China affects things that happen hundreds of thousands, if not millions of kilometers away from planet Earth. And before you even think the words space race, let me give you a reminder of a discussion we had on our podcast back in February 2021.
1: What we're seeing now, which which makes people think of a space race, we're actually seeing space becoming more competitive in a sense and more open. We're seeing China, which has made big strides in the last decade or so, being able to carry out really complex missions like the Americans. Um, Also we're seeing smaller countries like the United Arab Emirates, which are also realizing that um, having a space industry can be very good for industry, for precision manufacturing, for, uh, for just for the economy. Also, I think in in terms of the UAE mission, that's kind of partly national security in the sense of keeping them, you know, in the discussion and keeping them on the map, as it were. But certainly spacecraft are getting smaller and more capable at the same time. So many countries are able to get into space using a launch service from the big space powers. And also even universities and and small companies from around the world are able to get involved because launch costs are going down, spacecraft are getting smaller and more capable. On the science side, this is also very useful because we're going to potentially have three spacecraft carrying out different sets of experiments with many different payloads. Uh, We haven't had that before. So to have that from two places, where you're able to then have some kind of comparative science as well as just fascinating and useful data, that's, uh, that's going to be tremendous for the planetary science community. So, yeah, it's a very exciting time in space.
0: We're not living in the 1960s And this is not a race between two superpowers who dominate all the technology needed to go into space. Instead, we're living in a world where numerous countries like India, Japan, the United Arab Emirates, Italy, France, South Korea, Israel, now all have their own space industries. And now, we have two superpowers locked in the competition over who gets access to that technology. Hello, I'm science reporter Holly Chick, talking to you from our newsroom here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Let me take you back to the start of this week and a couple of days of big announcements for China's space program and China's intention of being a world space power. Since the year 2016, the Beijing central government has designated April 24th as Space Day in China, marking the date back in 1970, where China launched its first satellite into space, called the Dongfanghong-1. This year's Space Day began with the announcement that both French President Emmanuel Macron and Russian President Vladimir Putin had recently been gifted some samples of lunar soil brought back by the Chang'e 5 moon mission in 2021. Next year, another Chinese spacecraft, Chang'e 6, is scheduled to land on the moon. The plan is to land on the far side of the moon and make China the first nation to bring back soil samples from the far side. A day later came this announcement from Wu Weiren, the chief designer for China's lunar exploration program. By building a large-scale long-term platform beyond Earth to explore the moon and the universe, we will pool the wisdom of space engineers and scientists from all over the world, greatly improve our understanding of the lunar environment and our ability to use lunar resources, and support mankind's dream to one day travel to Mars and beyond. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. Let's make this easy. We'll make this a three-stage podcast. And we'll start by heading up to China's space station, the Tiangong. Then let's head to the moon. And then we'll head to Mars and beyond. We'll need an expert crew. And I know exactly the people we need. If you've listened to our previous podcast on China's space industry and the Tianwen mission to Mars, you'd remember the voice of Andrew Jones. He's a dedicated space journalist specialising in China's space industry based in Helsinki. Hello, Andrew.
1: Hi, thanks very much for having me.
0: And my colleague on the science team in the Beijing Bureau of the South China Morning Post is Xingling, who has been reporting on all the announcements from China's National Space Administration this week. Hey Xingling. Hi everyone. Let's start with that rocket that's currently being assembled at the Wenchang Satellite Launch Center on Hainan Island on the southern coast of China. Well, it's supposed to launch in just a week or two at the start of May. Xingling, this rocket is headed for the Tiangong
2: Space Station. What's on board? As we know, uh, Tianzhou-6, it's a cargo mission, which means it sends up supplies, uh, not astronauts, to the space station. So there will be no one on board. According to local traffic closure notice, Tianzhou-6 will probably lift off between May the 10th and 13th on top of a Long March 7 rocket. There are currently three astronauts uh, living on the Tiangong Space Station, but these supplies on Tianzhou 6 are mainly for the next three-person shift, uh, which is the Shenzhou 16 mission. So those three astronauts will go up to Tiangong Station uh, later after Tianzhou 6 and uh, stay there for six months. Uh, Of course, we don't really know what's on Tianzhou-6 right now, but the previous cargo mission, Tianzhou-5, we know that it carried uh, more than five tons of supplies, including food and medicine for the astronauts, as well as scientific instruments. And there was also like more than one ton of propellant.
0: Well, Andrew, can you recap for us why China isn't allowed on the International Space Station?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a big question to, to open up with. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that goes back to kind of the geopolitical situation and, you know, kind of a couple of decades worth of how the relationship between the US and, and China has kind of de- developed. So, you know, back when China first launched its first crewed mission, so when uh, Yang Liwei made it into orbit in uh, 2003, I think China was already on the pathway to, you know, building its own space station, but was also open to joining the the ISS. Uh, Other partners were more open to uh, the Europeans. uh, Russians would, would have been open to Chinese participation but uh this was something that the, the US was not happy with uh and so what we have now is um, two space stations in in orbit you have the ISS and then we have tiangong and uh it doesn't look like that situation will be will be changing uh any anytime soon. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how long ISS stays up in orbit and whether we'll see commercial space stations from, from the United States or possibly even Europe in orbit with Tiangong or if Tiangong will for a while be the only space station in orbit. So th- th- that would be something very interesting to follow.
0: But what about the other countries? Has China been reaching out to other nations to work on the Tiangong space station?
1: Yes. So back in the, the middle of the last last decade, so I think 2016, 2017, there were astronaut training exchanges between the European Space Agency and and China. So I think Ye yeah, Guangfu went to to Italy to participate in uh, kind of subterranean caves training which was uh, kind of uh, you know an analog to you know some kind of deep space kind of uh, you know lunar exploration training so that that was a very interesting thing and then a couple of European astronauts went to Shandong a year later for sea rescue training so that that was part of a pathway which would have seen a European astronaut travel to Tiangong later this decade but uh, we got confirmation from the Director General of the European Space Agency earlier this year that um, ESA doesn't have the, the the funding or the political backing to engage in two space station projects at the moment. So, um, which is understandable. I mean, there's the you know ISS to take care of, and then also Artemis on the horizon. So. Lots going on there. So, um, yeah, th- that's that's a very interesting question. It's going to be very interesting to see from which country the, the kind of first international astronaut is that uh, travels to Chiangong. Um, I think Pakistan has expressed quite a strong interest in, in this, but uh, we haven't heard anything official from China on this. So, yeah, that's something definitely to watch.
0: Xing Ling, can you tell us how long the Tiangong space station is expected to operate for, and how does this compare to the ISS, which has been operating since
2: 1998? Well, my understanding is that the designed lifetime for Tiangong space station is about 10 years. Is that right, Andrew?
1: Yeah, that's my understanding too. So yeah, at least at least 10 years.
2: Yeah, at least 10 years. Um, it might, you know, expand later as well. Well, compared to the International Space Station, which is uh, literally the largest structure human beings have have ever put in space, the Tiangong Space Station is only about one-fourth in size. And so far, the International Space Station has hosted more than 3,000 scientific experiments. But China is also planning to uh, host... Hundreds, if not, you know, over a thousand of those in the next 10 years.
0: Well, yeah, so let's talk about the moon. Only a couple of weeks ago, China hosted its first conference to discuss building a base on the surface of the moon. And Xingling, you reported on this.
2: What did you find? Okay, so the name of the conference is Extraterrestrial Construction Conference. It was the first of its kind ever held in China, and more than 100 researchers from various disciplines went to Wuhan because, you know, building stuff on the moon is a highly interdisciplinary task. It was held at... The Huazhong University of Science and Technology, because there is a digital construction innovation center there, uh, which has been working on the subject for years. And the center's chief scientist, Ding Le Yun, he is actually a leading figure in the community. And although the experts cautioned that uh, extraterrestrial construction is still at a very early stage and the community Uh, needs to exchange ideas and build collaboration. I think they did not really hide their enthusiasm to test out their ideas to build stuff on the moon very soon. For example, Ding said uh, with the technology developed at his lab, he hoped that China will 3D print the first brick using real moon soil in the year 2028 during the the Chang'e 8 mission. So that's only five years from now
0: it means that the scientists will be using moon soil to make bricks to build a moon base on the moon. Andrew, do you have anything to add to this?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something, it sounds kind of absolutely wild, but this is something that other space agencies have been looking into for quite a while. So the European Space Agency using what they call a lunar regolith simulant, so something which they put together, which is designed to be very similar to the actual to real real stuff on on the moon they have been learning how to actually make bricks from from this simulant so uh it looks like china is kind of looking to build on on this kind of uh, approach this kind of technology and actually do it on the moon so th- this, this is something which is you know kind of transformational because when when you go somewhere in space uh, you kind of have to take everything with you. Uh, so as, as Ling was saying with the uh, Tianzhou 6 mission, you know, you have to send all the water, all the propellant, all the, all the food has to go up to the space station. So if when you are go to the moon, which is, you know, uh, three days away and lots of propellant and, you know, very expensive, if you can actually start building things using the actual resources there, that really saves a lot of mass, which you have to take with. So that, that really is something which will be the future of, of exploration. So that's going to be great to follow.
0: Well, in China, the scheduled launches start next year, and it starts with China trying to build a GPS system for navigating the moon. Is that right, Xing
2: Yeah. Early next year, China will launch Chuechou-2, which is uh, its second relay satellite at the moon to help uh, land its next three lunar missions which is Chang'e 6, 7, and 8, to relay data from the far side of the moon to Earth. Riding with Chuiqiao-2 will be two smaller satellites, which will test out China's ambitions to set up a Beidou-like navigation system at the moon.
0: See, as Xingling, you mentioned the Beidou system. It's basically China's answers to, to GPS on Earth. The next three years are going to be very busy for China's space program, especially in the moon. And we have got Chang'e six, seven, and eight coming. Can you guys just recap for us what's going to happen with these missions?
2: Okay, so in May next year, um, China is supposed to launch Chang'e six mission, uh, which will make sample return from the far side of the moon. So these samples will be the first time uh, humans ever return samples from the far side of the moon and in 2026, China will launch the Chang'e 7 mission uh, which will include a hopper to jump to the bottom of moon craters to look for water ice. Andrew, do you have anything to add to that?
1: The interesting thing, um, Chang'e 7, Chang'e 8, they're going to have rovers and um, these kind of hopping spacecraft which will be able to look for water ice. Now, the interesting thing there is if we can find water ice, again, that's something which you don't have to take so much of from Earth. So you can use that water, basically drinking water for astronauts. You can split it into hydrogen and oxygen and use that for propellant for you know for rockets which could help you get back home or um I think it's China also on Chinese space officials mentioned this week they're actually looking at using the moon as a launch pad for further destinations in the solar system or yeah you can kind of uh, use electrolysis and get oxygen from this and use that for for breathing so again that that's a very very big picture very fascinating thing that we get to watch China and other space actors looking for in the in the next few years. So it's a very, very timely mission.
0: Well, 2024 is the year planned for the American Artemis mission, planning to land astronauts on the moon. And it seems that everyone is interested in the place to land. Both Chinese and American scientists are looking at the South Pole. Andrew, what can you tell us about that?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that I think the the first crude Artemis landing won't be happening in 2024. It's probably going to be more like 2027 or or, or later. So, I mean, we might actually have a race as much as I hate using the word race, to kind of see if China lands on the moon before the US returns to the moon. Uh, it will probably be getting quite close because China's developing a launcher and a, a lander and a spacecraft, which I uh, would be able to put a couple of astronauts on the moon. So that's interesting. But the, as to the, it's a very pertinent question, on the actual landing site. So the South pole of the moon is of special interest because there you have craters, which never get any sunlight. So that means that you might have volatiles like water ice, like uh, Ling was talking about earlier, which might be stored there. So if you can discover that, if you can access it and and process it, like we were talking about earlier, then then that's a really big boost to various countries' exploration plans.
0: Andrew, it looks like it's going to take a little longer for the American Artemis mission to get there into the moon.
2: And Xing Li, what are scientists talking about their own missions? Well, as far as I know, China is eyeing a spot known as the Shackleton Crater at the south pole of the moon to land their uh, Chang'e 7 mission. Is that right, Andrew?
1: Yep, that's right. So there's a limited number of sites at the south pole of the moon where you can kind of get access to these craters which are permanently shadowed and might have uh, water ice in but at the same time have a kind of high enough elevation where you can get uh, energy from the sun for long periods because on on the moon you have a 14 day night and a 14 earth day day so you if you can get to a place which is kind of has a high elevation at the south pole you can get Uh, a level of energy from the sun for a longer period so that really constrains the places that you can land and operate at the south pole so there there is some overlap in the sites that the us and china are are planning but i mean that's something where you really need coordination and discussion between these uh, space actors to to make sure that you know things go as well as they can rather than these exploration expeditions that we're seeing you know turning into more of a kind of political issue back on Earth.
0: Well, in space, because there's something called the Wolf Amendment. Andrew, what can you tell us about this?
1: Right. So the Wolf Amendment is the name for a piece of legislation which is inserted into a NASA appropriations bill back in, I think it was 2011. And what that does is makes it very difficult for NASA to work with or really communicate with Chinese entities. So, I mean, it's not impossible, but they have to get Clearance, I think, sixty days in advance from certain agencies in, in the US, including the political bodies there as well. So it, that makes things difficult. So that 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 really prohibits kind of bilateral ties. Uh, the, the good thing is that NASA can engage in multilateral forum, uh, which include China. So there, there are things like the International Lunar Exploration Working Group, which, you know, countries who are interested in going to the moon can go and present their plans and everything. So there, there is some, you know, some level of, you know, back and forth and kind of discussion on plans. And at least these countries know what the other one is doing to to a certain extent. But I mean, these issues in outer space, in, in low Earth orbit, in, in the moon, I mean, the these really do need coordination and discussion. So, yeah, there, there, there are some barriers here to uh, making this kind of renewed international interest in the moon work in a, in a smooth way.
0: And it's not just about the Wolf Amendment, um, there's something called the Artemis Accords in the US. Xingling,
2: what is China's answer to that? Actually, just a few days ago, the National Space Administration of China proposed the International Lunar Research Station Cooperation Organization, which uh, is seen by many as an equivalent to the U.S. Artemis Accord. Uh, So the National Space Administration of China is calling for partners from all over the world. According to the administration, Six countries and organizations have already signed cooperation agreements or letters of intent with the country, including Russia, Argentina, Pakistan, the UAE, Brazil, and an organization known as Absco. And they are also negotiating with 10 more countries who might be potential participants of this cooperation organization.
1: Yeah, if I can just add to that, I mean, this this is a very interesting astro-political development. So the US is looking to set up uh, a lunar presence with the Artemis program and kind of the political underpinning of that is the, the Artemis Accords. So what, what they're trying to do is lay down some rules of the road for how you carry out Lunar exploration. This, this touches on kind of like on the potential use of resources which you mine from from the moon. Uh, also, transparency in terms of uh, how you, how you operate. So, the, the US is trying to attract partners uh, both in terms of the technical and scientific and engineering side for involvement in these projects, but also then the the political side. So. It's interesting now that China is also looking to build its International Lunar Research Station or ILRS in in the 2030s. So, this is kind of China's framework for getting countries to get involved in its project. So, um, Russia was stated as a a joint founding partner back in 2021 when the blueprint for this was laid out. But now it appears Russia doesn't appear so much now in the actual statement on this and it seems that you know, China is very much the, the leader here. So again, it's, it's another fascinating uh, development and it will have uh, you know repercussions for how this renewed interest in the moon kind of plays out.
0: I've got a quote here from one of China's senior space scientists that Xing Ling used in the story last year about the Chinese response to Artemis. A lot of people see this as a competition, but I don't. The Americans made it to the moon more than 50 years ago, so the competition is actually non-existent. We in China had our own plans to go to the moon, even when there was no Artemis. What space has taught us is that humanity, as one species, needs to look beyond national boundaries and join hands to advance our knowledge for a common future, in particular when we explore the moon and beyond. Okay, so let's join hands and advance beyond the moon to the planet Mars. There were two announcements from China's Space Administration about its ongoing mission on Mars. One was the production of a full-colour topographical map, and the other was that they'd lost contact with their rover that was landed there in May of 2021. And I'm guessing the Chinese state media was only interested in one of those announcements. Xing Ling, can you tell us about the map?
2: Sure, the map was compiled using more than 17,000 images taken by the medium resolution uh, camera on board uh, the Tianwen 1 orbiter. So the job was done by last June, but it took some time for them to compile the images together. Uh, So the final images uh, has a resolution of 76 meters, uh, which according to some Chinese media is the highest resolution color-coded global map of the red planet uh, we have never got. Is that right,
1: Andrew? It's because it's a medium resolution camera. So it's the highest kind of, it's not the highest resolution camera, but it's the highest resolution global map, right? So, I mean, there are higher resolution cameras, both on Tianwen-1 and on Mars uh, MRO orbiter, right? But because each picture you take is so small in terms of how much it covers, you can't make a global map of it. You know, when you take a picture, you need a certain resolution, of course, but you also need to be able to capture a big enough chunk of Mars at one time so that you can... Patch it together to make a whole global map.
0: Xingling, so China still has the TM1 orbiting Mars.
2: What's next? So China is eyeing to return samples from the red planet. It plans to send a spacecraft there around the year 2030, the timeline of which coincides with the US plan to retrieve samples from uh, the same planet.
0: Well, it's going to be a key step because nobody has ever brought back soil samples from Mars.
1: Yeah, that's right. This would be a, a towering kind of technical challenge to to do this. So basically what you, you need to do, you need a series of spacecraft to, to do this, this one mission. So the Chinese plan would be to have two Long March 5 launches and separately they would send... A lander with an ascent stage on it. So that, that has to go to Mars, has to land, be able to carry out the sampling. I think there's going to be a scoop and the drill. There might even be a kind of a, a mobile aspect of this where you have like a, a either a small helicopter or um, a crawling robot. So get the samples, put them into an ascent vehicle. So basically, you have to carry out a rocket launch from the surface of Mars, get those samples up into mars orbit where the second spacecraft which is like a service module or an orbiter um with a kind of a capsule which when you get back to earth you can release and it will be able to survive at a very high speed re-entry back through the atmosphere and land on Earth, so I mean that's why we've never got samples from Mars. It's so far away. It's very difficult to land on Mars, and never mind to actually launch back from there again. So the great thing is that so China is doing this, looking to launch in the 2030 launch window. Quite when they will be able to get those samples back depends on the orbits of of Mars and Earth, how they relate, and also depending on you know the surface operation so the the timing they didn't release this week the actual timing there was an earlier mission profile released where they kind of detailed that they would launch in 2028 and be able to get the samples back by July 2031, I think. Now the interesting thing is that would have got samples of Mars back to Earth. I think two years ahead of the Mars Sample Return project being run by NASA and the European Space Agency. So they're looking to launch around 2030 also. So both teams are looking at. I think it's about 500 grams worth of samples that they're looking to bring back. So the interesting thing is that the Perseverance rover, uh, NASA's Perseverance rover, is already taking samples and leaving them on, on the surface to be collected as part of this mission. So the great thing is there that you'd have quite a quite a diversity of, of samples, which you would be able to select from and bring them back rather than just something from a one local landing site. So, I mean, th- this mission, uh, the reason that China and America and Europe want to do this kind of thing is because basically you're looking for... Signs of existing or past life, or the conditions which would have been, you know, said that, okay, this place was habitable. Uh, we will learn so much more about Mars and also our solar system and our place in it by getting these samples back to Earth and having a look at them than you can just by having uh, rovers working remotely on the red planet. So, uh, I mean, this is really pushing kind of humanity's overall knowledge forward. This is, you know, this is uh, one of the great big next steps for us to take in space.
0: So we started this podcast with a mention of China's first ever science fiction story being about a moon colony. I have to ask about China's plan for the planet of Jupiter, which was also part of the plot in China's most successful science fiction movie, The Wandering Earth. Andrew, tell us what you know about this.
1: Right, so this mission will be called Tianwen-4, it will be launching around 2030, and the primary mission is to go to the Jupiter system because, you know, Jupiter's so big and it has so many moons, it's kind of like its own little solar system in a sense. And the focus of this would be the Galilean moon Callisto which is one of the, the four Galilean moons of Jupiter. So the, the idea is that Callisto has a very old surface with craters from billions of years ago. So, you know, going back to the beginning of the solar system. So the idea is to see what we can learn about those early days of the solar system and also about Callisto itself, about its potential subsurface ocean. We also have the European Space Agency a couple of weeks ago just launched its JUICE mission, which will be focusing on Ganymede and then... Next year, NASA will be launching Europa Clipper, which will be focusing on the kind of icy ocean world of of Europa. So we'll be getting a very good look at these three moons. Uh, The other part of this is that there will be another spacecraft which will separate at Jupiter and use that to slingshot it towards Uranus, so we'll get a flyby of Uranus, uh, which we haven't had for you know since the Voyager days. So we're going to learn so much more about the solar system from this mission, and together with these other missions that are ongoing. So again, it's another another great mission to look forward to.
0: So that's what's coming up in the next few years. But let me take you back to something else we mentioned at the start of this podcast. Private companies launching satellites and vehicles into space. Andrew, can you give us an idea of how many launches by private companies from China are happening this year?
1: Yeah that's a, that's a, that's a good question it's also a good question about what you define as private or not as well so this this kind of commercial sector is becoming very busy in china um, it's kind of hard to make sense of i did a count earlier in the year of which companies were planning to do launches and how many and i think there could be a, more than 20 uh, launches and just to put that into perspective i think the first one by a private company was in 2018 or 2017 and there's only been like a handful you know each year and that's been growing so now we have i think galactic energy will be trying to launch as many as eight of its solid rockets while also trying to work on a more complex and larger liquid propellant vehicle you have land space which is trying to launch its due to air two rockets that could be happening soon so that would be a, a big milestone if they can get to space space pioneer is another one they became the first private company in china to launch uh, liquid propellant rockets and successfully reach or, orbit then you have companies like caspace and xspace which are a kind of spin-offs from huge state-owned enterprises uh, so they have their own plans, or their own launch schedules coming up. So I think X-Base might be launching maybe eight to ten times. Caspace maybe three times. So yeah, I mean we could look looking at well over twenty launches for this particular sector. So and th- these companies aren't launching the the kind of satellites and the kind of programs which China's main space contractor is launching. So those will be the the civil and um, you know defense contracts that they're launching. So they're, they're launching satellites which have been built by other private companies and so on. So this is kind of really growing China's space industry in in a sense.
0: There was a lot of discussion on Chinese social media about the SpaceX rocket exploding after liftoff. Xingling, what's China's space community response to the SpaceX explosion?
2: Well, my impression is that the research community, they uh, mostly see it as a successful test flight. And some scientists, they didn't like the idea, you know, describing this flight as a pure failure. But a rocket engineer I talked to, he didn't see it this way. He said, technically, this was definitely a failure. You know, the Raptor, Engines kept failing, and at the end of the flight, eight of the 33 engines went out. And he also raised concerns against uh, this technical route, which is using lots of engines in parallel uh, in the booster stage, which was what the Soviets' rocket N1 did during the space race in the late 1960s and early 70s, uh, which kind of sealed Soviet Union's fate in the space race.
0: Andrew, did you also observe anything on Chinese social media about the SpaceX explosion?
1: It was quite funny on, on Chinese social media. So you had the kind of the picture at the bottom of the super heavy booster as it was taking off and it's showing these 33 Raptor engines firing or not firing in some cases. So the kind of this shape and which engines were off kind of turned into a meme. And I think there was one where you had like um, these so- so- soot sprites from My Neighbor Totoro, that famous Japanese movie. So it's like the, the, the engines are gone out and been you know, replaced by soot sprites and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, people did have a lot of fun with this as as well, so...
0: So SpaceX is an American private company. Andrew, how does SpaceX compare with Chinese private space companies?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. With this very high-profile Starship, you know, orbital test launch, we saw yet again that you know SpaceX is willing to try to move fast. And not afraid of having something explode spectacularly in front of everyone, that approach largely has provided the company with, you know, quite rapid progress and being able to do things that other companies wouldn't dare to do. In the, in the sense, it's um, not to say that there weren't problems with the the launch. Whether you consider it a like success or failure, I mean, the amount of concrete it was thrown up by this launch was uh, you know crazy so that was something that they certainly need to address you know with certain systems before they make a, a new attempt with national level companies, I mean, they can't afford to have these high profile failures. I mean, that that is, you know, any failure would be a failure. When the SLS took off last year, if that failed, then that would have been a disaster. So this this is very different. Um, it's, it's the same for China's main space contractor. They can't, you know, go and do things like this. I think Chinese private space companies would have more space to be experimental, okay? But at the same time, I don't think they operate in a similar kind of environment where they can just be blowing things up and blowing up people's money, you know, invest investors and stuff like this. So um, it's, it's, it's a bit complicated. So Chinese commercial space companies will be trying to also land their own rockets. The first stages in the near future, a few have done the hop tests. So that will be something to follow and to see how much kind of openness there is around us and, and everything. So uh, yeah, I, I guess what I'd say is, we're going to learn a lot more about these companies and how they approach things in, in, the, the coming years.
0: Andrew Jones, thank you so much for your time. A reminder that Andrew can be found on Twitter at AJFI. He's publishing articles just about every day on space.com and spacenews.com. And Jingling, thank you for joining us from Beijing. We can find more of your stories on scmp.com.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much. Thanks
0: so much. That's all for this week's edition of Inside China. Don't forget, you can keep up with the reporting on China's space industry from Xingling and all of us on the science team here at the South China Morning Post at scmp.com. We've lost our blue take on Twitter, but our account is still operating. Find us at scmpnews. And don't forget our channel on YouTube for the latest from our award-winning video team. My name is Holly Chick, and let me leave you with this quote from one of the last people to walk on the moon. Back in 1972, it is from an astronaut named Edgar Mitchell. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scrub of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out and say, Look at that, you son of a...